0: So there's a story that's told about a boy who lived in the hills of Ireland. He looked after sheep. He's a shepherd boy. Anyway, there were some long days and he was a kid. So he got bored hanging out with the sheep all day. So just to make things just a little bit interesting, one time he yelled out, wolf. And it was, it was so funny. All the people from the town came running to help chase off the wolf with their shovels and their pitchforks and whatever else they could grab even though there wasn't a wolf in sight. Now, the people from the town were pretty mad, but it was fun. The kid was cracking up. A few days later, that same boy was bored again, nothing but time on his hands, and he couldn't help himself. He did it again. He yelled out, wolf, and everybody came again, and again they were mad. They cursed the kid out something serious, but it was still fun. Okay, you know where this is going. A few days later, there actually was a wolf, and the boy yelled out, Wolf, at the top of his lungs, and nobody came. The wolf decimated the flock of sheep. The boy was humiliated, but he learned his lesson. Now, is this story real? Did it actually happen? Does it matter? Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast, Episode 37: Battle Axes and the Boy Who Cried Wolf.
1: Welcome to the Sandbox. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris and I'm Dave,
0: and before we get too far into today's episode, we've got a couple of quick announcements. We have an exciting episode coming up on March 1st with our friends Mark Scandrett and Heather Lynn and some others from the Nine Beats Collective. People from four continents gathered to create songs and art exploring the ancient wisdom known as the Beatitudes. You won't want to miss this one.
1: Also, last fall, we had our friend Regina Mustafa as a live event guest to talk about interfaith dialogue, and we recently brought her back to the sandbox for our first ever meetup. We were able to continue the conversation and dig in a bit deeper about how we can support and learn from each other across some of the divisions we face. If you're interested in these in the future or would like the resources to host your own, wherever you live, be sure to sign up for our email newsletter for details.
0: But now it's time to get real. I remember telling my daughter Mia that story when she was four years old, the one at the the beginning of the podcast, The Boy Who Cried Wolf. And I asked her at the end what it meant, and she nailed it. She didn't ask if it was real or fake. She didn't care. She knew that if you lie too much, people won't pay attention to you anymore.
1: Yeah, and that that story sort of become baked into our
0: cultural narrative. Now you can just say, don't cry wolf, and people know what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, you were probably listening to me tell that story at the outset and about two sentences in you're thinking, "All right, uh, I get the story, Dave. Don't lie. What's your point?" Yeah, we've heard this one before. Yeah, I mean people are actually asking me what my what's my point all the time. <laughs> that's so not uncommon that's, for you. That's but... actually I'm kind of used to it by now, <laughs>
1: but Oh, but the thing, the thing with a lot of these types of stories is that like they were never supposed to be more than that. They were mm-hmm. never supposed to be more than, than having a point and teaching us something. You know, some of these stories have pigs that talk have wolves that want to eat grapes and all sorts of other logically impossible things. I mean, why do we have this expectation for stories that matter, that they have to be factual? What if our stories are, are maybe teaching tools about what it means to be human?
0: Right. And I think in some ways that's kind of like expecting all visual art to be a photograph. A lot of the time when people look at a piece of art and it might be a drawing or a painting, they'll indicate how good they think it is based on how realistic it looks. This idea pops up all over the place that art is better if it is realistically portraying the object that it represents. Yeah, I think people who don't consider themselves
1: artists are impressed because of the technical skill that it takes to paint or draw something that looks realistic. Uh, but to be honest, those aren't usually the most interesting works mm-hmm. of art to me, uh, at least not because of their realism. Right. Uh, a few years ago, I, I had this opportunity to go to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, and I saw uh, Rembrandt's most most famous painting, The Night Watch. It's, it's a pretty realistic painting, um, but it didn't necessarily impress me because of how much like the people looked like people or the buildings look like buildings. I was just impressed by how huge it was. Um, so I don't know if you're familiar with this, but this thing is 14 feet wide and 12 feet tall. And... I don't know how mm. to begin painting much of anything,
0: let alone something that big. Well, I, I could paint lots of stuff that doesn't look realistic that's that big. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you have rollers for that though, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah,
0: you know, it, it, that reminds me of when I was I was in college, I did a study abroad trip as well. And I was a sophomore in college and I had the opportunity to go to the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. And you can tell by the way I say, say that, and I'm not French, <laughs> uh, but the Musée d'Orsay, oh, amazing museum. And also, in addition to not being French, I am no student of fine art. That's absolutely not my background. So I'm this 19 year old guy and and I encounter impressionist paintings in a world-class museum for the very first time. I was absolutely stunned. Uh, Monet, it blew my mind. Never seen anything like it. But then somebody who actually knew what they were doing told me to stand up close to these paintings and then explain what I saw and then slowly back away. Suddenly, random strokes of a brush became these spectacular scenes. Random paint strokes became the stunning, iconic water lily pond, or, or the houses of Parliament with the sun breaking through the mist. Random colors transformed into something that was completely and totally, and I don't even know how any other way to say it, but real. But what's more real? An oil painting... Or a photograph. Conceptually, we could say that, that the photograph is more real because it, it's a representation of whatever the physical stuff the camera captures or, and, and what the eye sees. But an oil painting can show a deeper sense of reality. It's what the heart perceives. It can, car- it can carry a, a sense of movement and color that uniquely reflects the artist's vision and emotion.
1: So I think when we ask this question, what's real, maybe sometimes the answer is, is yes. I mean, a photograph is certainly real. It usually does a good job of representing what we see with our eyes, but paintings that are made of individual brushstrokes can show us that there's something more meaningful going on and that often the whole is more important than the reality of each individual part. So as you were talking about the paintings you saw in Paris, it made me think about another form of painting called pointillism, and it's made from small, distinct dots of color, and they're applied in patterns until they form a whole image. And maybe if you've looked closely at comic book page, uh, you might have seen how, like a very similar pattern from the way that they print, um, where each dot itself is just a color, and it really doesn't look like much. Uh, but when you put them together, there's a whole image and even a whole story that comes to life. So at the end of the day, I think it's all real in some way. I mean, the dots, the brushstrokes, and the whole painting. But I don't think we get much meaning out of
0: just those brushstrokes by themselves. Hey, you know what? That makes me think of something. And and I, w- I just want to shift gears a little bit. I think it's time to talk about my new hero. It's a guy named Chris Connors.
1: Okay. So I don't know if uh, I know where you're going with this, but
0: have I met Chris before? If you've met Chris, uh, I don't know, but... Y- You'd be a lot cooler if you did. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. This guy is amazing. So, and, and you know what? I've never actually met the guy either, but I was just doing some reading. And Chris Connors was a guy who died in late 2016. And his obituary was headlined. Get this headline. It's a quote. Irishman dies from stubbornness and whiskey. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and his daughter who wrote it swears that it's 100% true. The obit went viral, as obits do. Usually (laughs) usually they do. And because it's pretty long, uh, we can't read the whole thing. uh, But here's an excerpt.
1: As much as people knew hanging out with Chris Connors would end in a night in jail or a killer screwdriver hangover, he was the type of man that people would drive 16 hours at the drop of a dime to come see. He lived a thousand years in the 67 calendar years we had with him because he attacked life. He grabbed it by the lapels, kissed it, (laughs) and swung it back onto the dance floor. At the age of 26, he planned to circumnavigate the world. Instead, he ended up spending 40 hours on a life raft off the coast of
0: Panama. In 1974, he founded the Quincy Rugby Club. In his 30s, he sustained a knife wound after saving a woman from being mugged in New York City. He didn't slow down. At age 64, he climbed to the base camp of Mount Everest. Throughout his life, he was an accomplished hunter and birth control tester with some failures, notably Caitlin Connors, age 33, Chris Connors, age 11 and Liam Connors, age eight. Uh, he, he was a rare combination of someone who had a love
1: of life and a firm understanding of what was important. The simplicity of living a life with those you love. Although he threw some of the most memorable parties during the greater half of a century, he would trade it off for a night in front of the fire with his family in Maine. His acute awareness of the importance of a life lived with the ones you love over any material possession was only handicapped by his territorial attachment to the remote control of his Sonos music. (laughs) Wow.
0: So we'll have a link to the entire obit in our program notes. You got to check it out. But contrast this obituary with a resume. Any resume. Resumes list facts. Career summary, area of expertise, your education, experience, volunteer opportunities. They're also 100% true, hopefully. (laughs) Usually. (laughs) (laughs) And they tell you about a person, but it's just missing something, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Now, Now, granted, I'm sure even the late, great Chris Connors from his obituary wouldn't lead with a Resume for a new job uh, with information like it said later on in his obituary, where he wrote, where it was written, his regrets were few, but include eating a rotisserie hot dog from an unmemorable convenience store in the summer of nineteen eighty-six. But even still, facts are fine, but our stories make us human. They tell us what we value and and where we've been and what we've learned. They take the facts and give them dimension and weight a good story is also something that anyone can plug into and learn a little bit more about themselves and their lives. Yeah, stories are just so much more interesting
1: than than resumes, Mm. Uh, they're powerful. Uh, We have children's stories that teach creativity and maybe how to treat our neighbors. And we have religious stories that show us how we can relate to one another as humans. We've got novels that help us discover the ways of the world around us and biographies that tell the stories of people who shaped our culture. Some of them are factual, But all of them, I think, are
0: meaningful, which means, of course, that sometimes there are meaningful things that aren't very factual. Right. Okay. So I'm not really wanting to stress anybody out right now, but it turns out it's tax season. And I recently heard the story on NPR about a relatively new problem for accountants. How do you claim income that you made in a virtual world? You mean like selling advertising space on a website or something like that? kind of like that only different it, i'm talking about selling battle axes <laughs> battle axes battle axes yes see there's a growing population of gamers who go into medieval worlds of their online gaming community and through winning battles and scoring points they are able to get premium weapons and magical spells and dave have you ever played a video game before potions and <laughs> lotions and i, I, I don't know yeah uh, I, I played super mario brothers um so no, some, some, some years back. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. But whatever it is that you try to gather, you know battle axes and those sorts of things, you get the, you get the picture. Anyway, here's the thing: they sell those weapons and other things to other people who are playing in this virtual universe, and they sell them for real money. So there was a guy who was making thirty-five, maybe forty thousand dollars a year selling fake medieval weaponry and spells. That's impressive. No, <laughs> it is, but how do you work that out with your accountant, right? <laughs> how, how do you tax that? He's making real money selling fake things. Yeah.
1: I mean, but it's also interesting that we have this distinction between real and fake. I mean, it, it seems like in the case of this guy selling battle axes, it's obviously meaningful. Somehow he can feed his kids with it, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> the boy has to eat, right?
1: <laughs> and I mean, it's certainly weird for, for many of us, but it's obviously captivating in some ways. It's the story of the game has made these items a value for people and so much so that they're willing to spend like actual real money to play it. And I mean, not to go too far down the rabbit trail, but like, is the money they're spending even real?
0: What do you mean? Is my Bentley Outback back real?
1: Well, is the, this, is this gold tooth real? I mean, yours isn't no, yeah. that's, <laughs> my, that's maybe a different story. What I know, what I mean is, is if you're like me, the last time you used like real physical money for anything was a while ago. Mm. Uh, almost all of our transactions are digital and they functionally equate to numbers Um, but even the the paper stuff only has its value because we tend to agree on that value and consistently trade stuff for it it's not really much of
0: anything right right if something isn't real it also begs the question does that mean it's not helpful i buy groceries with my debit card the video game guy from the news story he buys groceries with the proceeds of battle axes and and both of these things work but what about God in this conversation? Some try to prove or disprove the very existence of God, whether God is real based on facts. And to me that that seems to be missing the point.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I agree. God and, and this idea of a relationship with with God is is more of a matter of, of faith than facts. And and before you hear that wrong, I don't mean blind faith or just believing what somebody tells you. I mean like it's a whole different type of experience. Mm. Like I think going back to what we were talking about before. God is known and I think becomes real or even tangible through our stories way more than any empirical evidence we could ever possibly gather. And all of which brings us back to our opening question,
0: what's real? Did it actually
1: happen? It
0: doesn't matter. I think what we've we've been getting at is that something is real if it has meaning. If it speaks to our minds and into our hearts. It captures our imagination and informs our lives in, in some way, big or small. And for me, it's precisely this imagination that that brings all sorts of stuff into the world and allows us to solve problems and make new things.
1: Yeah, I think this idea, that idea of imagination is pretty important. Because not only does it help us solve problems, it, it helps leave us open to learning in a way that we might not be able to be open to without it. Um, since we've already talked about fake battle axes, battle access, check. this episode would not be complete without a good, nerdy Harry Potter reference. So Another check. <laughs> many of you probably know the story, but at the end of Harry Potter, there's this huge battle scene where Voldemort is finally defeated. I won't say too much about how this happens, just in case you aren't familiar with the story yet. But at the end of the scene, we discover Harry in a sort of spiritual realm along with Dumbledore. The scene ends as Harry is trying to figure out what it is that he's experiencing, and he asks this. Professor, is this all real? Or is it just happening inside my head? Of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. Why should that mean that it's not real? So maybe these stories, and our willingness to allow them to bring meaning into our lives, give us something important that facts alone can't. From faith, to art, to science, stories and ideas continue to be the source of
0: inspiration towards something new. From Harry Potter to Joan of Arc When Joan of Arc was 13 years old, she began to hear voices in her head, and she was convinced that God was giving her a mission to save France by defeating their enemies and installing Charles as the rightful king. She goes on to lead this effort to make it happen, and before long and after a stunning victory, the new king was crowned Charles VII. Eventually, she was captured, and her captors told her that the voices she heard were only in her imagination. And she replied, and I quote, How else would God speak to me if not through my imagination? How else would God speak to me if not through my imagination? See, one time I was talking with my preaching professor and mentor, and I was telling him a story, and I finished by saying, But it's only a story. He followed with, never say it's only a story. There's always more to it than we understand. What about that? Could it be that there's a whole lot more going on here than we realize? And could it be that through stories, art, and imagination, we are able to experience God and creation in stunning and breathtaking new ways?
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. We have lots of exciting new things coming up in the next few months, but just a quick reminder that one of the episodes we're most excited for is coming out on March 1st.
0: It's an interview with some of the people behind the Nine Beats Collective. You'll hear some of the familiar voices, including our friends and live event guests, Heather Lynn and Mark Scandred, who are a part of this project to create songs and art exploring the ancient wisdom known as the Beatitudes. Also, don't forget that on May 7th, we'll be inviting Drew G.I. Hart to the Sandbox stage.
1: Drew wrote a book called Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. We can't wait to dig into this
0: conversation and learn from Drew. For that and other things going on in the Sandbox, sign up for our mailing list at SandboxCooperative.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
1: Also, be sure to share this podcast with someone who might like it. There is always more room in the Sandbox.
0: Until next time, we'll see you. Bye.
1: Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox.